Hey gentlemen, it's Matt Noel here. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the podcast. You are going to love my conversation with my guest, Ted Nellis. We actually spoke so long, I had to break this podcast down into two episodes. You are going to love his story. He's a former small-time pool hustler, bank robber, prison inmate, to now being an author and a minister of the gospel. He and his wife, Janet, have been involved in ministry for many, many years together, and you are going to be amazed at the grace of God in this man's life. Part one is amazing. Be sure to join me for part two next week. It is also even more amazing at how God brings his story all together. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends. It will be a blessing to you and it will be a blessing to them. Enjoy. And she's making her way home and there's cop cars everywhere. Police officers walking all over the neighborhood. She had no idea what was going on and she came in the home and heard me and my partner's voice downstairs. She came downstairs. There's money all over the place downstairs. The lights are all out and she saw me and she said, this is about you, isn't it? Meaning all the police and all the commotion going on outside. Local news station doing their thing. And, uh, and I had to tell her what had happened. In the next few moments, I could hear my mother yelling it outside at the front door. Don't shoot him. Put your guns away. He's my son. She had let the police know that the robber they were looking for was her son and was in the basement. And before long, there were a dozen uh, cops crashing into the room downstairs where my partner and I were guns out, pointed at us. Welcome to the Frontline Podcast for Christian Men, a place where men can find encouragement and strength to remain standing when the battles of life are closing in all around. A place where men will hear honest truth that will equip them and arm them to keep fighting in faith against the enemy's daily opposition. Gentlemen, you and I have been enlisted by God in the spiritual war as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, and the enemy wants to steal your joy and rob you of your peace. He wants to divide and destroy your marriages and your families. He wants to distract you from fulfilling the plans and purposes of God. And with his accusations and lies, he will tempt you to give in to fear, doubt, shame, and condemnation. But today, gentlemen, we refuse to allow him to take the win. And today we will stand in the victory that the Lord has won for us. Gentlemen, my brothers in Christ, welcome to the front line. Attack the objective! All right. Well, we're going to get started here. So for those of you who are tuning into the podcast today, I want you to... Uh, know that you are in for a real treat today uh my my good brother in christ uh ted nellis is with us today and ted and i actually we go back uh about 19 years i think long the, long time yeah in the in the early 2000s we um we actually served in different ministry capacities at the same church in our local city 
And um, I know Ted and Janet were involved in ministry. Uh, my wife and I were involved in youth ministry. In fact, actually two of your sons were in our youth group, yeah, which is pretty cool. And, uh, and for those of you who hear a female voice as well, that is uh, Ted's lovely wife, Janet, who is also chiming yeah. in as well. But um, so we go way back and it's just an honor to connect. We, we actually haven't seen each other for a couple years. We saw you um, at the camp uh, that we go to yes. together. And yes. you actually shared your your testimony there as well. Yes. And so I'm really excited to uh, to have you share your story today on the podcast. And actually, there's one memory I have when I worked for Pastor Ken at the church. I was on yeah. part time staff with the youth and um, it was the time. And I know he's still doing his radio program, uh, Life right. in Balance. And yeah. this is this is the time when there was the compact disc, the CDs. <laughs> and if you're a younger man, you're like, what's a CD? I have no idea. Yes. Well, I remember part of the job that he wanted me to do was to to kind of burn and edit the CDs and then package the Monday to Friday. So five CDs, package them up. And I drove them down to the Faith FM radio station where your right. wife, Janet, right. would receive them. And right. So... <laughs> Boy, that's a long time ago, Matt. It is. And it it's is. funny because nowadays we would obviously just send an email and there's all the MP3 files. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, that, and that was where... Um, where Janet first met your father, Mike, was okay. at Faith FM. Um, because back in those days, I mean, we knew you and Cindy, um, but we didn't know your your dad, Mike, wonderful man, was a man of God and a minister. And yeah. and it was in Faith FM that Janet connected with Mike and then, and then myself as well. Yeah, and of course, during that time, my dad had the radio program on. Yes. And the one episode he had you on to share your yes. story as well. So this is awesome. It's fa this yeah. is father son from father yeah. son, and and I actually met your brother in Fredericton. Okay, yeah. At the radio station that that he was or still is. Now, did you was, share your story on that radio program? I was with I was out on a speaking tour. Okay. Um, with New Life Prison Ministries, and the director whom I was traveling with was being interviewed that morning by your brother, and when we walked in, it was six seven o'clock in the morning for her to be interviewed. As soon as he walked in, he, he stopped and he said, he looked at me and said, I know you. Yeah. And this is Fredericton and I've never been in Fredericton. And I said, how is that? And he said, are you Ted Nelson? And I said, yeah. He said, well, my father's Mike Noel. You, you, I think you know him. And I said, oh my yeah. God. So here we are. This is full family circle day for me. Yeah. Now I know when my dad had you on his program, he only had about 30 minutes. Here, I got all the time in the world. There's no time restraint go. on here. So we're we're in for a treat. We can hear the long version of your story. But your your incredible story is basically summed up um, as small time pool hustler, convicted bank robber. <laughs> Very small time. <laughs> yeah, small time pool hustler, convicted bank robber and born again Christian. That is yeah. basically the sum of your story. And of course, you wrote a book, which I do have. It's a fantastic story that you wrote. I think in 2013, around that time frame, yeah. and uh, it's called Journey to Redemption, and we'll share at the end of the podcast where the, it's still sold on Amazon. Uh, yeah. You can get it in paperback like I have or on Kindle for your phone as well. Um, but I want to just read uh, kind of the summarize sure. the, what the book's about, and then we're going to hear right from you as well. But sure. um, it says Journey to Redemption paints an intimate portrait of a man desperately searching for himself. Now, I just want to stop there for a moment. Because this is a men's podcast. This is a podcast for Christian men. That's that's my target audience. Because when the Lord laid it on my heart, not quite two years ago to start this podcast, it was based on the idea, Ted, of, of how hard it is to be a Christian man in, in the world we're living in. 
There's mm-hmm. a lot of opposition here. There's a lot of pushback from the enemy, from the world, from culture, and even from our own internal thoughts as well of, of who we are in Christ. And yes. so there's you say here about this, your story, it's an intimate portrait of a man desperately searching for himself and his place in a world he found himself at odds with. And yeah. I want you to know that there very well might be men who are going to listen to this podcast and, and they're in that same place. They're wondering, God, mm. why am I here? What's mm. the purpose of my life? Because even followers of Jesus will struggle with that question. Absolutely. God, here I am. I put my faith in you. I'm trying to trust you and serve you. But God, I feel confused. I feel despair. Lord, what do you have for me? And so this is exactly <laughs> your story is going to go out and impact men like that today. Amen. And it, go, it goes on to say, we travel with Ted Nellis into some of the dingiest pool rooms, hotels and, and hostels in Western Canada. And just also for you listeners, you know that I'm a Canadian and also Ted's a Canadian as well. So it's great to have another Canadian. I ha- I've had a lot of American friends on the podcast. So it's great to have. I've also had an Australian. So it's good to have a Canadian. Wow. Um, so so join Ted in his cell in the Kingston Penitentiary. Uh, peek into a deserted doctor's waiting room on a quiet October evening and discover Ted on his knees during an encounter with God that would change his life forever. And then our pastor had a little uh, blurb to say on your book. And Pastor Ken said, Ted is a trophy of God's grace. And that yeah. sums it up. Excellent. You are a trophy of God's grace. Mm-hmm. And so, so Ted, you've shared your story numerous times, I'm sure. You've traveled. You mentioned that you were on a, on a traveling, uh, speaking and preaching tour uh, on yeah. the East Coast not too long ago. But you shared your story and preached the gospel many different places. You are a preacher. You are a minister of God. Uh, You've been in many churches, men's breakfasts, youth groups, uh, obviously radio shows. We've already talked about that. And even high schools and prisons and also the streets. You've preached everywhere, brother. And now now you're here to share your story on the podcast. And I want to read one quote that you wrote in your book before I give you the mic. You said you always felt ill-equipped to speak or share in any capacity under any circumstance to anyone, but God seems to feel differently. And and I love that. And when I read that quote from you, brother, it's like the Apostle Paul. Paul's like, I come to you in fear and trembling. And then Paul's like, in in my weakness, God's strength is made perfect. And you you are a walking uh, picture of this truth right here. Every time you say you, you never feel equipped, you never feel worthy to share your story, Absolutely. But, God, but God comes through because God is all over your story. So, Ted, I want to hand the mic to you and I want you just to start at the early stages. We have all the time in the world, brother. So walk us through. Uh, start at Ted kind of life as a boy for Ted growing up and we'll just let the story unfold from there. Sure. Um, Matt, um, uh, life as a boy was was uh, very unremarkable in most ways. And and uh, I think that I experienced all the wonder and excitement and enthusiasm and joy of a, of a boy growing up in, in a very average home. Um, there was some good and there was some not so good. I, I was uh, more blessed than other kids uh, growing up on my street and in my neighborhood and perhaps um, a little worse to wear than other kids. I'd say it was a happy medium of both. I by all outward appearances, I had a very normal childhood, very active in sports, organized sports, and in school, 
Um, and I, I, I did all that. Um, I was a terrible student in school. The classroom experience was abysmal for me, even at a very young age. I just did not connect well in class. I, I, I had a real, I had a very hard time absorbing and learning um, from the in-class Blackboard experience, which, which made me a bit of a, a daydreamer and I had a spirit of uh, wonderlust in me. Um, and so the good in my life was that I had uh, affirming, nurturing parents, and I was active in, in all the normal activities of a boy growing up into his teens. Uh, the bad would be the flip side of that coin was, was that I was also on the receiving end of uh, some abuse and some bullying um, outside of the home, in the neighborhood, and at school. Many of us have uh, been, been bullied at one time or another, and also some forms of abuse on and off in my home, um, emotional, verbal, and at times sexual abuse in my home. And so it was a dichotomy. I never knew for sure what I was going to come home to. Mm. It could be the loving, nurturing parents who, who never missed a baseball game, a hockey game, always made sure I was at practice on time, or it could be the other way. And so I think I was just kind of confused a lot of the times and sure. and, ang and angry inside and trying to sort this all out and what does it all mean and when we're young kids we, we don't know how to articulate our thoughts i just kind of crawled inside of myself and and just thought this is life and so if i I'm could almost, just ask one if i could ask one question yeah, there you you interject what, whenever you want to Mike. sure what do what do you think because for your parents on one side to be you know committed parents nurturing yeah. taking you to practice on time yeah you know, affirming you as a son for them to, it's almost like that Jekyll and Hyde mentality. Then Absolutely. to switch, what was there, was there something that was causing that? Cause sometimes alcohol or drugs or was there something that in hindsight, now you realize what it was that would cause them to be so one, one, you know, Jekyll yeah. and Hyde kind of thing. Yeah. Alcohol definitely with my father. He, um, okay. he started going to AA. I might've been 10 years old when he began going to AA and he really straightened his life out. Um, my parents went through a separation at the time as well. My father was, you know, was having an affair and was an alcoholic. And so an unstable environment in that regards. And beyond that, um, they both uh, grew up in somewhat, um, dysfunctional homes as well. And, and so, you know, it's a generation thing. Yeah. Um, and I, and I'm almost, I don't, I'm, I'm almost always hesitant to share what I just shared because so many multitudes of millions of kids had it so much worse than I ever did, Matt. Yeah, yeah. I'm so much worse. And, and I am in no way finger pointing and saying, they're the reason I made mistakes. If it hadn't have been for my parents, I, I'm not coming to this, approaching this subject in that spirit at all. Mm -hmm. And, and I threw it all. And, and, and at the end, I loved my parents. Um, God gave me the grace to forgive them. Uh, my father received Christ as Lord and Savior awesome. before he passed away. They both, they were both at my baptism at KW when I was baptized, and it was the proudest day of their life. Wow. And so, as I've often shared with folks traveling across the country and in prisons, you know, how we begin is of little importance. It's how we end. Yeah. You know, yeah. let's end well. And, and yes. men, let's, let's, let's end well. Let's finish mm. strong. I finished very strong with my mm. parents. And I'm so grateful for that. And so that what I share is just a very general backdrop yeah. of, of my upbringing as a boy, um, how, how much it shaped me, what kind of influence it had. I'll never know. And it really doesn't matter anymore. I knew yeah. I knew kids in the neighborhood who did have it far worse than I did. 
I'm only sharing because it's true and, and, yeah. and not in any way to, to be disparaging at my parents. It's not a, this isn't an opportunity to beat up my mom and dad. Yeah. I loved, I loved them and I forgave them. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, yeah. and that's so encouraging for many people to hear. Like, it's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. Now, are your parents still alive today, Ted, or? No, no, they've both passed now. Um, okay. Uh, my mom, maybe 10 years now. And my father, perhaps um, six or seven. Okay. You know, and my dad was very instrumental in the, in the writing of the book, Journey to Redemption. Okay. Um, he got behind it. There's a photo of my dad and I on, it's, I think it's on the third or fourth last page of the book. We yeah. were around each other, and that, that that was the end for my for my dad and I. My mom didn't live to see the release of the book, but she would have certainly been very proud. And my dad really championed the book, and he wow. couldn't tell enough people, look what my son did. And wow. he was very proud, Papa, and he did come to Christ in, in his uh, final years. We had a good end. What a blessing. That's great yeah. to hear. So, yeah. so, you, so you mentioned about your upbringing, you know, within your parents, your household, and you mentioned yeah. about school. School was just always a struggle for you. And I understand you dropped out earlier. And then what, yeah. what, 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 when did you drop out and kind of what did you start to get yourself involved in? Because sure. now you're a dropout as a, as a yeah. young kid with lots of time on your hand coming yeah. from a dysfunctional home at that time. Yeah. Talk about yeah. that. Far too much time on my hands. And so the, I, the turning point in my life, I would say about the age of 13, was one day wandering into a pool room downtown in my in my hometown. One day, I can't remember why I was in the area. Was that was Guelph? Still, it was Guelph. Okay. One day, I, maybe I used to go to the library quite a bit. I was always an avid reader, even as a child. And maybe I was coming home from the library and came home a different way, but I wandered into a pool room downtown Guelph in my very early teens, 13, 14. That was the moment that changed my life, Matt. I, I, as I'd said, I was an abysmal student, terrible student, and, and really, really looking for the meaning in life already. When I walked into that pool room, my, my world changed. I, 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 I just was absolutely enthralled with everything I saw and heard in that moment. And I saw, I saw it was snooker was, this is a long time ago in the 1970s in Canada, yeah. snooker was the game. It was all snooker on the big six by 12 tables. And I saw, I saw grown men in suits changing money, money change, money being thrown out on the table and money being put into pockets. So there was gambling going on, which really excited me. And, and there was a long bar in the, in the billiard room and, 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 and gentlemen lined up drinking, uh, espresso and cappuccino even back then and and i saw guys coming and going out of the basement of the billiard room there was a, a 24-hour poker game going on down there okay. so i stepped into this 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 new world for me hmm. and i and i wanted everything that i saw in that world i don't even know why but it changed hmm. me and my life that was the that was the birth of becoming a pool player and a small time pool hustler. While I was a terrible student in school, the billiard room downtown Guelph became my new classroom. I was a, I was a straight A student coming up in the billiard room where I failed miserably in school. Wow. I passed with straight A's in the billiard room. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I recognized early on that I had a certain ability on the table and that it just became my life. The figures coming and going out of the billiard room became my new adopted family, my home away from home. Um, I, I was already on shaky ground with my parents and it was a somewhat dysfunctional home atmosphere. And so I, I was only home to sleep 
and was always at odds with my parents because my attendance at school had dropped off. My grades just plummeted entirely. What, what little of me was hanging on in school went out the window and I, I quit school at 16. As soon as I turned 16, shortly yeah. after I, I quit. And, so I know, you know, I know in your, I know in your book, you said that the pool hall became your sanctuary. It did. You know, like, a, like a, like a holy kind of place for you. And you even said how they, those people there became your family. Yes. And there's a, a quote in your book. It, you said, I'd rather be a pool hall bum than anything else in the world. Yeah. So w- when you went into that pool hall, when you were 13, 14 years old, did, did you're so young still. Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure that most people in the pool hall at the time were grown adults. Absolutely. Did, did they accept you? Did they question young man? Why are you here? Or did they fully accept you and kind of take you under their wing and show you how to play and how to gamble? That was it. I, I was I was actually mentored on the pool table by many. And so I was still in school at that time. You know, this I was in just in junior high, grade yeah. seven or grade eight. And uh, and I had a part time job working at a Max Milk. And so every dime I earned, I spent in the pool room learning how to play. And I was there after school and all weekend, Saturday and Sunday from nine in the morning until nine at night, every Saturday, every Sunday and every evening after school. Wow. down down there my parents worried sick and it's going to come to no good and you're you're meeting the wrong people and we don't want you hanging around those characters which only made me defensive of, of everybody that i was meeting and you know it was never the game of pool that, that got me into trouble it was it was the people that i met coming and going out of the pool room some some fine upstanding gentlemen in there on their lunch hours and and spending their time in there as a hobby and also some some more nefarious characters, the criminal element coming and going. Whether I found them or whether they found me, I've never known. But there was an attraction uh, in that way for me as well. And I was soon spending spending more and more time with the criminal element as well. And, and as particularly when I had dropped out of school at 16 um, was when uh, criminal activity began to, uh, to give way in my life. It wasn't just about pool any longer. It was also yeah. small-time crime. Now, was... And I don't I honestly don't know this, but is gambling for money a crime in a, in a public pool hall like that? Was that illegal or, or was that perfectly fine? That was perfectly fine. Okay. You know, play, playing playing for so much a game, uh, so much a point. Uh, perfectly fine. You know, uh, uniformed officers coming and going out of, out of okay. the pool room all the time. Okay. And, you know, that was that was totally legal. It was it was See? well known and. So yeah. you started getting involved in, in gambling and winning some money yeah. playing pool, which was which was not legal. So how did that lead into some of the criminal activity and, and what did that look like at the start? Well, when I quit school and um, and uh, particularly when I left home, I, I began leaving home for different lengths of time when I was 16 and I, I would be surviving on the streets. I would sleep under bridges and I was kind of just the existence of a homeless kid and um, picking up money when I could on the pool table and also pulling small, small scores around the downtown Guelph area and making just enough money to survive for a day or two, put some money in my pocket, some spare change, really a very aimless existence. Um, I think because I was at odds with my family at home, it made living any kind of a normal life impossible. And, um, and after a couple of years or about a year and a half of living on the streets in Guelph on and off, uh, towards the end of my 17th year, I was actually living out in Calgary, Alberta at that time. What's up uh, there? Well, I had, I had several close calls with the police in Guelph. 
um, several of the guys that I hung around with and, and uh, pulled small criminal scores, B&Es and robberies with had been uh, arrested on and off. And uh, some were even in jail already at that time. And I had an opportunity to go out to Calgary. A friend of mine from school was living out there. This was in the 70s. Go West, young man, was heralded. There really was a lot of work and opportunity. And I felt maybe it's a good time for me to get out of Guelph and kind of start over in Calgary. Now, the problem was I took myself with me. And Uh. all, all of my habits and my lifestyle went with me. And it wasn't long before in Calgary, I was, I was kind of living the same lifestyle and, um, yeah, it just, it just followed me a little bit of pool, a little bit of crime living in hostels. Yeah. So you're basically finding yourself as a young man, uh, you're not working for your income as far, I mean, you're working in one sense as far as you're working on the pool table, but, but certainly not steadily anyway. Yeah. So when you find that you're starting to make money, did, was it pretty good money that you found yourself making from, from winning that pool and, you know, these small hustles that you've been finding? It Was it becoming more and more money? Because that must have been quite addicting and like um, the, a, a pull, like alluring for you. Like, man, here I am. I don't have to go to school. I don't have to work. I'm making money doing something I, I love. It's fun. I'm with people that accept me. You know, did that present itself as a form of a high for you and that you just kind of wanted more and more of it? And did that lead into small time kind of robberies now on the West Coast of Canada? It in in terms of the pool room scene, um, it presented a viable means of making scratching out a living for me. Um, You know, I, I this is this is a long time ago now, 40, 40, 45 years ago. I'm, I'm 62 now, and so I was out in Calgary when I was 17, and and I, I it wasn't uncommon to make 150 to 200, sometimes more a week. Well, back then, making 200 a week, tax-free cash dollars was feel like making a thousand a week today. Yeah, for sure. I smoked, and I mean, a pack of cigarettes to put perspective on it was 50 cents. A pack oh, of wow. cigarettes was 50 cents. Oh my. A, gla- a glass of draft I drank then a glass of draft <laughs> was 10 cents in the hotel wow. so to put so, so to put a couple hundred dollars a week in perspective it went a long long way sure. I could go into a hotel and get a cheap meal a glass of draft buy a pack of smokes for five dollars and here I am 17 <laughs> years old and hitchhiking around western Canada you know I did I did a small road trip at one point I hitchhiked from Calgary to Vancouver and back i spent two or three weeks in vancouver came back and i came back with several hundred more dollars in my pocket than when i left and that's after being on the road for several weeks and saw much of beautiful western canada and so i was living that kind of a life and i don't know if it was a high or if it was just a um the opportunity presented itself as a really great way for me to get by and i'm i remember i had a i had a hotel room in a hotel called the Colonial Hotel, downtown Calgary. And across the street from the hotel was a bus stop lined with people waiting for the bus to go to work every morning. And I'd be walking past them on my way to the billiard room. And I felt sorry for them at that time. 17, 18 years old, arrogant, cocky. And I would think those poor people going to a job they hate, clocking in nine to five every day. I'm going to go to the pool room, make a quick 40, 50 bucks. And if only, if only they knew how good I had it. You know, I considered yeah. myself quite a high roller. I was a bum. Yeah. And whenever I bottomed out, which I inevitably did, I would just go stay at the single men's hostel. Free bed, free food. 
I'd uh, work, there was a labor corner in Guelph where if you stood on the corner in the morning, uh, cars and trucks would come by and pick you up for a day's work and pay you cash. It was a labor corner. And when I busted out, I would just stand on the corner, go out and work for a day or two, another 50 or 100 bucks in my pocket, start all over again, get a cheap hotel room, and away I went. That was the cycle until I was 19. Wow. Yeah. So so when I know that eventually part of your story is is bank robbery. Yeah. But but before that, what were kind of the what we'll call more of the small time jobs of as far as robbery that you found yourself doing? Because it's one thing to win money by playing a game. That's legit. I mean, you win the game, you win the money. But it's another thing to take money from somebody, whether it's at gunpoint, knife point, just intimidation or whether, you know, snatching a person, running off, what did that look like before it led to the the, the big point of your story of, of falling into bank robbery? How did that start off? What were those jobs looking like for you? Never armed, um, never armed, never violent. Um, everything from, from robbing people personally, um, from promising someone a drug score, taking their money and just not going back which was very dangerous yeah. work. Um, I'll be back. I'll be back in a half hour if I could get someone naive enough to actually believe me. But, uh, but that I did do that um, and, mm. and just walked away with all their cash in my pocket and didn't return. Did they ever try to come find you again? Cause like, yeah. And the one off? person I, the one person I did that to did find me in the pool room and um, um, it worked out in my favor. He didn't get his narcotics and I still had the money. Um, at the time, but from, from, you know, just terrible, terrible things that I did, the way I treated people, I, I just shudder. Um, I was, I was just, just a, a bad guy Two two small time pocket change robberies, including the pool room that I played mm-hmm. in every day. I knew where their cash drawer was behind the counter. Okay. And I would keep the owner busy at one end of the counter and my accomplice would be leaning over the counter at the far end. Um, taking all the rolls of quarters and dimes and nickels and loose cash, whatever he could find, did that a number of times until they finally figured out they were being being uh, robbed and, and moved their their cash drawer. Um, there was one place downtown Guelph that my partner and I uh, robbed for petty cash three times, three times um, before they they as well moved their their petty cash box somewhere else. And so very small time stuff. Now, I know, um, again, I, I wasn't sure it, you'd have to remind me if this happened before or after the when the bank situation happened. But I think there was a situation where there was a Christian bookstore. Is that ring a bell? Talk to me about Abs- that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this this one story could could go on forever. Um, now, now, was this before the bank robbery? Oh, absolutely. This, this was okay. before this was before I even moved out west when I was 17. So. This is yeah, when let's I was talk about this. This is when I was 16 okay. and living the 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 on again, off again, homeless existence in Guelph. Sometimes I'd be at home um, arguing with my parents, and sometimes I'd be living under a bridge somewhere in Guelph. And um, there was a Christian bookstore right across the street from the pool room. My partner in crime at the time and I were in the pool room one day, sitting having a coffee. We were broke. Um, what are we going to do? We looked across the, the street and there was the Christian bookstore. I haven't, I don't know what possessed us to think this would be a lucrative take. We, we agreed to go rob the Christian bookstore. There was a, 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 an elderly, older woman 
managing, working the place by its, by herself. She, she, I found out was the owner and uh, running the place by herself. Um, same, same thing. I would keep her busy at the front counter while my partner went into the back room and looked for a cash box. We thought it would be the easiest score, the two of us and the senior old, older woman. And so I did, we did go in and I kept her busy in the front. My partner was on his knees and he did find the cash box and he was riffling through it in the back room. And just a few minutes into asking her questions at the front to distract her, she remembered the two of us had come in and she, she motioned for me to be quiet and stop talking. And she said, didn't you, where's your friend? You came in here with, with a friend. And she came up from behind the counter and started making her way to the back of the bookstore. And when she was making her way to the back, I started making my way to the front door, getting ready to bolt. And um, she, she leaned in the back room and saw my partner going through things, looking for cash. And she shouted, you know, Hey, what are you doing down there? Get out of there. And he, bolted past her and when he ran past her he inadvertently kind of knocked her aside she was standing kind of in the middle of the doorway and he didn't mean to physically push her but he when he ran past her he just kind of shouldered her to get to get by her and and out the door we went we went flying down the street and directly across the street from the bookstore was a uniform cop standing right in front of the pool room looking right at us wow two young guys long hair bolting down the street out of a used book out of, out of a Christian bookstore. I mean, he, he uh, ascertained immediately. It wasn't the Holy spirit that had us flying down the street. <laughs> and he, and he, uh, he gave chase. He, he, there was a foot chase going on through through the streets of downtown Guelph. Wow. We thought we lost him. We were catching our breath, leaning up against a dumpster in an alley. He came around the corner and he, he had us remarkably. Um, he brought us back to the bookstore. He, he, he didn't know what had happened just that we had run out of the bookstore. And so he, rather than take us to the police station, he took us back to the bookstore and he found out from her what had happened. We were in handcuffs in the back of the uh, cop car and uh, she wouldn't press charges, Matt. She wouldn't press charges. She was not interested in seeing us get into any more trouble than we already were. Um, we were. We were now, you know, out on the sidewalk and um, she forgave us. Wow. And I never got over it. Hmm. I have very rarely shared the story with her and not just become really emotional. Yeah. She had every reason to throw the book at us. She had every reason in the world. You know, I'm sick of you kids always getting in and out of trouble downtown you know, violence, this and that. And she had every reason to press charges. And she had been, she could have charged us with assault. She had been knocked yeah. aside, running out yeah. of the bookstore, attempted robbery, all, all kinds of things. She forgave us entirely. Hmm. She said to me, I don't think you're a bad guy. Hmm. And it killed me. I mean, even then, as a 16-year-old, I knew I had done wrong. I knew what I had done. It was just awful. Yeah. And her, her forgiving me and saying to me, I don't think you're a bad guy. I mean, talk about killing someone with kindness. Yeah. I didn't know then that I was on the receiving end of incredible grace. I had, I couldn't put that together back then. Yeah, I was just, sure. I was just this misguided, angry teen getting into trouble. I know now looking back mm. the huge seeds of grace and forgiveness and kindness and, 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 and God, 
was moving in my life even back then. Yeah, and so that I, was the that was the book that was the bookstore deal. What's really what's really interesting about that bookstore, and I'll share it just very in just in a couple of minutes, mm-hmm. was that um, Bruce Nicholson. Do you know Bruce Nicholson, the realtor? I, rec- I, I recognize the name. Yeah, Bruce Nicholson owned a shoe store right beside that Christian bookstore back then. Uh, Bruce Nicholson has spoken widely in the area. He went away for bank robbery when he was a young man. So Bruce Nicholson took owned this shoe store right across, right beside the bookstore that I robbed. And he spent all of his breaks across the street in Tony's Billiards having coffee whenever he could. He when when God began moving on him, he started going in to the Christian bookstore that I attempted to rob, spending all his time in there being witness to. And that lady that I'd robbed sharing Christ with Bruce, Hmm. which really helped him along his journey of coming to the Lord. Bruce and I um, rubbed shoulders together all the time back in those days in Tony's Billiards, but we didn't know it. We didn't know each other then. We do now. Hmm. And it was through Bruce that I found out so many years later who that lady was, that that bookstore was still running in Guelph when my book was published now some 40 years later Mm. and that I had an opportunity to go in that same bookstore all those decades later, (laughs) introduce myself as the one who had tried to rob them years before and apologize. Wow. So uh, the Lord really joined the dots. Yeah. Crazy. Did you give them a free book? (laughs) They, they carried my book. They carried my book. And they gave me two book signs. <laughs> oh my goodness! In their in their bookstore, um, the name had changed. Um, the lady whom we had attempted to rob um, got out of the business a couple of years after that. She she was very elderly then. Yeah. And her husband was blind. And um, shortly after that incident with me, she sold the bookstore to these individuals who then ran it, still in Guelph for the next forty something years, and and it was still open when my book was published and I, and I had an opportunity to go wow. in. I had always, I, when I became a Christian, one of the first things that I'd wanted to do was I, I'd wish that I could meet that lady again because she mm-hmm. forgave me. And I thought if yeah. only I could meet her again, thank her, thank her for her incredible grace and let her know how I was doing that I had come to the Lord because it would have yeah. thrilled her. Absolutely. And, but I, but I got to do the next best thing. I got to meet friends of hers mm-hmm. who knew all about it. And he, he put his hands around my wife and I in the bookstore all those years later, some 38 years later, mm-hmm. and, uh, and forgave me in her, in, in her name. And we had quite a time of worship and tears right in the mm-hmm. bookstore. Customers That's coming amazing. and going. And <laughs> it was, uh, it was wow. just a wonderful moment of redemption and a full circle moment for me. Yeah. Wow. Well, I wonder, I wonder, and I'm sure you probably wonder the same. When you look back, if she decided to throw the book at you, if she decided to lay charges, I wonder what the course of your life, as far as you finding salvation mm. at some point, I, yeah. I just wonder the entire course of your life, where it would have led to, because she yeah. showed you, like you said, man, she showed you grace and mercy, yes. undeserved, undeserved. You yes. did not deserve that. No. But, but she gave it. Yes. And and it, it and then years later you see those seeds that she planted. Yes. 
are watered and now come to fruition and yes. present this amazing harvest in your life. So that's powerful stuff. And I think we yep. can take that lesson and 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 realize when we show grace and mercy to people who do not deserve it, God can take that and use it in powerful, powerful ways. Yes. Which look at the story you just shared. And then years yes. later, your own book is sold in the very store that you robbed. Yes. So yes. now take us back out to the to the West Coast. I'm glad that we touched on that story because that's powerful. Take us back to the West Coast and what leads up to you guys coming you coming to a place in your life, Ted, of whether it's desperation or just foolishness or whatever into deciding to enter into robbing a bank? Sure. Um, desperation, certainly. Um, bankrupt in every way imaginable. Um, when I decided to rob a bank in Calgary, um, I was uh, 19 and had been living on the street for, for three years at that point, three plus years. And in this, this endless cycle of, of, of money broke, money broke, hotel room, hostel, and um, small time crime in between mixed in here and there. And, um, you know, at 19, honestly, I felt 40. I was really worn out. I was really tired. I was really, really um, had come to dread my life. It was, it wasn't fun anymore. It was exhausting. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know, I didn't know what to do about that. I, I had no education. I had really no ambition to work. I wasn't lazy. I just was constructive in all the wrong ways. And um, so I was really at a loss, as you know, you had mentioned at the beginning of the program, a young man who was, who was at odds with the world. I was just at odds with the world. Um, and I didn't know my place. I didn't know who I was. How do I fit in? Uneducated pool hall bum. What do I do? And, I, and you know, when I started robbing banks, I wasn't groomed for this life. I didn't grow up in a crime family. And it was a natural progression of things. You know, one day, Ted, you're going to be robbing banks with your with your uncle over there. You know, right, he's right. a master criminal. And I grew up learning the trade. It wasn't like that. I was just a dumb, misguided, angry 19-year-old kid, very desperate, didn't know what else to do. And the gentleman that I robbed the bank with in Calgary, we were in the, in the, in the pool room in Calgary, where else, having almost the same discussion that I'd had with my partner in crime before we robbed that Christian bookstore. Mm -hmm. Two of us sitting in the pool room, broke, what do you want to do? And I said, half-jokingly, Let's just rob a bank. And he said, okay. But he wasn't joking. Mm. And I was 19. He was about 30. And we knew each other from the from the billiard room. We weren't we weren't good friends, but we knew each other. And uh, and I said, you know, you're serious. He said, Yeah. I said, okay, we'll do that. We were both staying at the singleman's hostel at the time. And that was what led us into robbing this bank in Calgary. And we, we got away. We got away with it, which gave us a, a false sense of security and hope. And I thought, wow, this is even better. Now when I how, bought it how did that How did that robbery go down? So it was an 8th Avenue mall in Calgary. And if anyone listening has been to Calgary on 8th Avenue mall, it's a it's it's an outdoor mall uh, shopping shopping strip that runs at least a mile and banks and stores, uh, no traffic, no cars, just a, 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 a very large, long outdoor pedestrian uh, mall with, with a bank on every corner. And we didn't have a car. We were not armed. 
And I thought we can walk in there in broad daylight. And, and the moment we leave the bank, we'll be lost in the crowd. And because there was no access for cars, by the time the police make their way to the bank, we'll be lost in the crowd long gone, which is exactly what happened. And uh, gave us a false sense of security. And in, and in my uh, very misguided mind, I thought, well, this is awesome. Now when I bought them out on the pool table, and I'm already traveling around the country, now, I, now all I have to do is hit a bank. Hmm. And I'll make a few thousand bucks, never mind uh, loose change. I'll just, I'll just travel around the country, play pool and rob banks. So how do you rob a bank, Ted? With unarmed, how how does how does that work? Because I've seen in in TV shows before, like they'll go up quietly and slip a note in front of them saying, "This yeah. is a robbery." How do you do that unarmed? How do you get away with something like that unarmed? That, that's exact. That's exactly how it happened. And um, huh. yeah, walk walked in, no disguise, no anything. Wow. Um, there, I mean, tellers are instructed instructed to comply. Right. Right. It's not their money, and the money's insured. Right. Uh, passed a note, passed a note. This is a robbery. I have a gun with the note, a paper bag, put all the money in the bag, which the teller just immediately began doing. My partner was at the teller beside me doing the same thing. She's putting money in the bag. I was talking to her while she was doing it. You're doing great. Just relax. This isn't your money. And out the door we went. We were, we were in and out in a minute and gone. And we were, we were, several blocks away before we started hearing police sirens uh, making their way towards the bank that we had just robbed. And by the time that they were in there, I'm sure there was a Greyhound bus station about six blocks from the bank. We just walked calmly, smoking a cigarette towards the Greyhound bus station, looked over our shoulder occasionally. And um, we had a change of clothes already waiting for us in lockers in the Greyhound station. Got, got our clothes out of the locker, changed in the men's washroom, threw our clothes in the garbage can. We were on the Greyhound bus out of town within 45 minutes of robbing the bank. And that was it. Not glamorous and not much money. Um, we were broke again in about six, eight weeks, you know, a few thousand bucks a piece and um, partied, and um, which led to the second bank. So how many banks were there in total? Two. Okay. So how did the second two. one go down? So the Rob first two. one, first one, it worked out well. Worked out great. Just as planned. What about the second one? Second one, not so well. Second one was a little too close to home. In fact, <laughs> it was my mother and father's bank. Um, yeah. You know, I was never the sharpest knife in the drawer. And, and <laughs> my partner actually tried to convince me not to rob this bank because it was my mother and father's. When I say their bank, they didn't own it. But it's where they did their banking. And we were back in Guelph. And I mean, Guelph's a small town. It's where they did all their banking. And the bank in question was right across the street from the University of Guelph. And I thought the same principle as Calgary, 8th Avenue Mall. I'll walk in the bank, rob it. I'll walk across the street onto the University of Guelph campus. And I'll be lost in plain sight again. By the time the police get there, I look like a student, jean jacket, baseball cap. I'll be mixed in the crowd of thousands of students on campus and um, I'll be, I'll be long gone. Same thing. Wait for a bus out of town. Didn't happen that way. The bank manager actually chased us. Oh, wow. Which he was severely reprimanded for by the police. I understand later because he didn't know if we were armed or not. And he, um, he, so there was a foot chase through the neighborhood (laughs) behind the bank where my mother and father also lived. (laughs) 
my goodness. So it's their bank. I'm hiding out in their house a block away from the bank after we were chased. We got away, but we're hiding out in the basement of their house. And they both worked on campus across the street. That day, my mother came home at noon hour. She never, ever came home at lunch. That day, she came home at lunch. She forgot something at the house. And she's making her way home, and there's cop cars everywhere, police officers walking all over the neighborhood. She had no idea what was going on. And she came in the home and heard me and my partner's voice downstairs. She came downstairs. There's money all over the place downstairs. The lights are all out. And she saw me, and she said, this is about you, isn't it? Meaning all the police and all the commotion going on outside local news station doing their thing. And, uh, and I had to tell her what had happened. I mean, you could cut the air with a knife, horrible, 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 uh, time with, with my mom. She, she was hysterical. She called my father at work. He came home. All I remember was in the next few moments, I could hear my mother yelling it outside at the front door don't shoot him put your guns away he's my son she had let the police know that the robber they were looking for was her son and was in the basement and before long there were a dozen uh, cops crashing into the room downstairs where my partner and i were guns out pointed at us they didn't know if we were armed or not and um that was the end of my illustrious bank robbing career. I, as I said, I, I was not groomed for this. I was not raised for this. This was not well thought out. It wasn't a natural progression of a life of crime. It was, let's just, let's just do this. I was sick and tired of the way I was living. I was sick and tired of living that. Yeah. You know, deep down, deep down, I kind of wished the cops would have shot me. That that would have that would have been okay with me. Then it would all be I was, over. I was a criminal with a conscience. Terrible, terrible kind of criminal. <laughs> I felt bad for everything I did. I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew I was hurting people. I just didn't know how to stop. I didn't know what else to do. And 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 if I had been killed in that moment, and and I believe I even thought about trying to make it happen. You know, going for one of their guns, trying to force their hand and just just end this thing. I knew prison was in front of me, which wasn't an attractive thought. 19 years old and being the youngest inmate in Kingston Penitentiary is a is a foreboding thought. And I just thought I'll end this thing and uh, on my parents front steps or or maybe maybe die in a pool of my own blood in their living room. And uh, and that would have been okay with me at the time. Thanks for joining me on the front line. Contact me at standingonthefrontline at gmail.com. Standing on the front line at gmail.com. Share this podcast with your family and friends. Look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep standing, keep fighting for the glory of God. <laughs>